All right, everybody, welcome back to Cerebral, a brain podcast. My name is Sunidi, and if you haven't noticed already, I'm recording today without our lovely co-host, Tyler. And part of that is because we're going to be doing something unique this week. We're going to be doing a part one and a part two series on neurotechnology. And a lot of that is inspired by a company called Hoth Intelligence. Fun fact, our lovely co-host Tyler is the founder and CEO of this company, and they aim to use artificial intelligence coupled with augmented reality and machine learning to change the surgical landscape. So for that reason, today I'm going to be doing an overview of neurotechnology and some of the things we should consider in using and in advancing it and in applying it to general society. And in our next episode, we'll sit down with Tyler and talk in more detail about his company, but also about neurotechnology in general, and about thoughts that he may have about neurotech. So the episode today is based on a chapter that I wrote for a company called Neurotech X, and the chapter is titled The Neurotech Primer, and I wrote a neuroethics chapter specifically. Not all of our discussion today may apply to the conversation we have with Tyler or to this chapter I wrote, but hopefully it'll give us a good framework for moving forward and to understanding neurotechnology and how it may be impacting our society in the future. Through the podcast today, and hopefully over the next few days as we record about neurotechnology, we'll be exploring questions such as the implications of this technology on the self, on our consciousness, on our identity, our autonomy, and also how we can ensure the privacy of our consumers and of the people that end up using this technology. We'll talk a little bit about global regulations, about laws that should be put into place to guarantee the safety and security of the devices, and also the safety and security of the consumers that use these devices. And lastly, we'll talk a little bit about marketing to the general population and things we should be aware of as members of the general population, but also on the other side as producers or creators of these kinds of technologies about what marketing can and cannot do to the general public. So as you can probably tell, this is going to be a whirlwind of an episode. Thank you in advance for joining me. Hopefully we'll all learn something about technology in the process and let's go ahead and get going. split this episode into three separate parts, hopefully to make it a little bit more digestible for everybody and a little bit more interesting. And I'm going to start off by talking about the self and about consciousness and about autonomy and identity. And consciousness is typically defined as someone's ability to be aware of their own experience and their surrounding environment, to be really aware of what's going on in their world. And really, there's no definition for consciousness that makes much sense, right? in a brain-centered universe, which is what we kind of currently live in now, uh, we seem to believe that the consciousness exists in the brain and that, you know, who we are is is very much rooted in, in the brain and the life experiences we've had over the years. But there is other research out there that suggests that maybe consciousness isn't just in the brain and it is in your body in general and, and how your body is set up. There are anecdotes of transplant patients who have gotten liver transplants or hand transplants who feel that they've become a little bit of a different person after their transplant. And the question there is, you know, is, is there a piece of you in, in your arm that you lost or a piece of you in the liver that was switched out? And maybe we're not able to identify what those pieces are and 
one of the big things that's happening now in the research field <laughs> in research in general is something called the gut brain uh, access and there's a ton of neurons that go to the gut and there's questions about maybe whether there's something there as well so consciousness may not be in the brain it may be everywhere in our bodies but it's really uh, our ability to be ourselves and to experience the world around us now autonomy is a little bit different it it speaks to the capacity for people to make decisions about themselves and sometimes depending on someone's brain status or a brain condition they may or may not have autonomy isn't always guaranteed a little bit similar to consciousness and autonomy but also different is the word identity and identity is usually defined as your beliefs your ideals and the perceptions you have about yourself and about the world around you so consciousness autonomy identity are really big things that people use to encompass what is the self um, and what is the true self like who are you to your core who are you at your base and there's a lot of different conversations about who a person is right Uh, a lot of times everyone says you know you have this one identity so Sunidi is a medical student or Sunidi is a caring person but a lot of times a, a one identity isn't enough right it's possible that somebody who knows you in one single setting is able to attribute that one identity towards you so somebody who knows me in medical school may be able to say yes Sunidi is a medical student but to my mom or to my dad or to my brother, me being a medical student isn't my most salient identity, right? Me being a sister or a daughter or hilarious or whatever it may be is more so an identity to them than it is for somebody that I just know who sits in class next to me. So identity can be a single thing. It can be a complex thing. And the reason we're talking about all of this is that neurotechnology depending on how invasive it is, can play into identifying and changing a person's identity. So let's dial back to DBS, and we've talked about it before, and I'll mention it again because I think it's relevant in the context of neurotechnology. DBS is also known as deep brain stimulation, and it is a surgery in which uh, surgeons implant electrodes into a particular region of the brain in order to decrease ideally in the situation of Parkinson's or even in depression and epilepsy for which DBS is being used now to decrease the incidence of depression or the incidence of tremors and Parkinson's or the incidence of seizures and epilepsy. So the issue with DBS is that there is a tendency or a potential or a theoretical potential for the electrodes to be placed in a different region of the brain, maybe a little bit here, a little bit there in the frontal lobe or a little bit here, a little bit there in the temporal lobe. And people have identified that they've become a little different after receiving the surgery. And this makes sense, right? We were saying with DBS that electrodes are implanted in the brain in certain regions of the brain. So let's say for Parkinson's that it's being implanted to help a tremor, but a little piece of that electrode makes it over to the frontal lobe and the frontal lobe is responsible for personality. And now, you know, we're stimulating that part of the brain. It makes sense that maybe their personality would change a bit. So Theoretically, it makes sense. Scientifically, it makes sense. And there are case reports and anecdotes of this actually happening. So what does this mean, right? What does it mean to play into the idea of a true self? What does it mean to take a neurotechnology, to take procedures, to take interventions that pose a threat to a person's personal identity, right? So what happens if a procedure has a side effect where a patient can wake up and be a different person, still healthy, but maybe a healthy stranger? And this is 
the effect that neurotechnology can have on the self um, in ways that other technologies that we currently use do not. And and Tyler and I have talked about this before, right? What's the difference between an invasive technology versus something like a phone or something like a watch that's just an extension of yourself? And I think the big thing is here uh, lies in the self and in the consciousness. And uh, interfering with the brain, right? Uh, it's very hard to interfere with it when we don't fully understand it as is the case in 2021. And it's very risky and risky when we're not sure precisely what regions or what circuits or what neurons of the brain we're manipulating or whether we're even supposed to be manipulating the brain at all, right? I said gut brain access. I talked about transplant patients. Like what if there's other things that we're not considering uh, when it comes to altering a person's self or uh, a person's pathology? So we may effectively be altering or changing properties of the brain, uh, but we don't necessarily understand why or, or where we're doing it. So that's um, topic number one, the self. And topic number two that I'll pivot into is about ownership and consent and responsible research and responsible research production. And I talk about this a lot on this podcast, probably because me and Tyler seem to disagree about the purpose of research and maybe the purpose of developing a future world. And my take on it is that um, any technology that is produced should be produced for a specific reason. And we can't just go and make things willy-nilly because then we don't really know what consequences we're going to put on society. So I always talk about Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook and that uh, there's really no way that he would have known the beast that he would have created. But Um, I think if we were a little more skeptical of the technology to begin with, our interactions with social media in the modern day would be very different. So speaking of responsible research, we've talked about this in the context of neural law a little bit, right? We talked about PET scans in the past. We talked about MRI scans and how um, if these scans disclose more than they currently do with more accuracy or more certainty, Uh, How do we limit this information from leaking or from coming out into the world? And how do we maintain boundaries on who has access to the technologies and to limit the potential for misuse and abuse? And I think the application of this to neurotech and surgery specifically, kind of roping back Hoth intelligence back into this conversation, if the technology makes a mistake, whose fault is it? So let's say I'm in the OR I'm wearing my cool augmented reality uh, goggles and I'm doing a classic gallbladder surgery and I'm just trying to use these goggles to make sure the patient's anatomy isn't any different from what I'm expecting from what I know is usually textbook anatomy, making sure I don't nick the wrong arteries or, or the wrong bile ducts, whatever it may be. And let's say that technology makes a mistake and let's say I had a little bit of a doubt about the technology, and we'll talk about overtrust in a little bit, <laughs> but let's say I have a doubt, but I go with the technology anyways, and I nick it, and the patient has complications. Now, whose fault is it, right? Is it the person who programmed the technology? Is it the person who tested the technology? Is it the person who is holding the scalpel and actually nicks the artery? I mean, It seems like there's probably an obvious answer, but at the same time, these are things that we should think about ahead of time, right? Um, Things that should be probably written into some sort of law or some sort of regulating body. um, And that way, if and when something like this happens, it's not a question as to whose fault it is. The other thing is the potential for technology 
to reveal something new. So we talked a little bit about brain technology and like I said, PET MRI, et cetera, about reveals, revealing something in a brain scan. But let's say, again, in this augmented headset that I'm wearing in surgery, what if it reveals a new pathology? What if it shows me, you know, a small tumor or it goes beep, beep, like unexpected anatomy here and it's a bump or a lump or something like that? Um, you know, is that something I tell the patient about? Is it something we biopsy? Is it something that I decide what to do depending on how big or little it is, how significant it seems or doesn't seem. Um, a lot of times the issue with technology, and I, I think I've mentioned this before, is sometimes it gives us more information than we need to know. And that little bump could just be some cholesterol in this guy's artery, or it could be an aneurysm, or it could be a tumor. Like there's no way of knowing, right? And sometimes that's information that we didn't need to have ahead of time. And Uh, It's something to think about, right? If the technology reveals new pathology, what do you do with it? And maybe I'll jump into an anecdote here for a bit, um, particularly because Tyler's not here to stop me from going on a a full-on tangent. But this issue of technology telling us things we don't need to know or kind of sending us into a rabbit hole or a black hole of searching for things is is not new it's it's something we deal with in medicine all the time and i'll give you an example from my own clinical experience last year i was on pediatrics and we had this lovely 12 year old girl who was an avid soccer player and she was just kind of kicked in the ribs by someone during a soccer game and her parents brought her in because she felt like it was hurting more than some of her other soccer injuries did and what they ended up doing was was a x-ray or a CT scan of her entire upper body. It must have been a CT scan, uh, probably because they were looking for a deeper muscle pathology, um, just trying to see what it was that was causing her so much pain in her ribs. And ultimately, what it ended up being was a, a minor bruise of her muscle. But what they did find, and mind you, this is a 12-year-old girl, right? She... Her life is is middle school maybe and and soccer and her friends like she's she's not thinking about broader implications of what it's going to mean to be an adult or, or a full on human and what this scan showed was that she did not have female reproductive structures in her lower abdomen so now there were questions about this girl's genetics about her gender about her sex and it was it was a kind of a mortifying experience for me as the medical student because I walked into the room mind you this is week one of my pediatric rotation of my third year and the parents are asking me if their daughter's going to be able to have children you know what this is going to mean for her and obviously those are very legitimate questions but this was all coming out of a, a minor injury <laughs> a minor injury and In this situation, it may have been appropriate because they would have found this out at some point in her life, um, maybe later where, you know, they wouldn't have had as much time to digest what was going on. But at the same time, it, it sent us down a very deep rabbit hole of figuring out why her anatomy was the way that it was and, and what it was that was going on. And sometimes 
you know, in this situation, it was helpful, but in other situations, it's, it's really just a very deep rabbit hole that, that we don't need to be going into and that won't really change anything clinically or medically or, or really anything at all. So, um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot to be talked about here in terms of, uh, laws and neurotechnology and law about making sure that technology is used in the right way. But I don't know if that's necessarily a conversation to be had today. I do think that um, as these technologies become more used, more commonplace, that laws should be put into place. But the specifics of those laws are hard to predict ahead of time. So uh, we'll leave that conversation to another day. So Part three of what I wanted to talk about today uh, is in the context of marketing. So there's a lot of words that I'm going to throw around that are kind of used in the neuroethics and neuroscience um, communities to talk about marketing. But the core of all of these words is rooted in trust, right? The steady belief in the truth of someone or something, the trust that we have in society every day that the car that I drive to work is built well and that the wheels won't fall off on me, that the train will show up on time so I get to work on time, that, you know, the floor of my apartment won't fall through, that the bridges we drive on don't collapse. I mean, we have so much trust in each other and in society, and it may not be very apparent, but it's definitely there. So I don't think anyone would argue with me if I said that the internet and that the use of the internet and the way that it's being used today has completely changed the landscape of the way we interact with each other, right? Facebook, Twitter, uh, the recent elections and, and the drama and politics have shown this to us. And most notably, something that's been going on in the past year or so with the pandemic is this idea of pseudoscience. And pseudoscience is defined by Merriam-Webster as a system of theories, assumptions, and methods erroneously regarded as scientific. So, you know, somebody saying blah, 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 and using scientific terms, and suddenly, you know, it's sold off by media as real science. And pseudoscience has a version of it in neurotechnology and in neuroscience, and that's called neurohype. So it's this broad class of neuroscientific claims without any convincing data. And this kind of happens, uh, as well as pseudoscience, pseudoscience and neurohype together, happen through the media, sometimes unintentionally, right? So the media is trying to turn complicated science into digestible English for the general population, but the digestible English usually oversimplifies or oversensationalizes information, and then all of this information from the media gets transferred into social media, and it's, again, oversimplified or over-sensationalized, and it turns into this vicious cycle of information being misrepresented and spread out to the masses. And it's the same phenomenon that renders general populations very vulnerable to something called brain scams. And it's supposed to be a play on brain scans. And it's this tendency that we have to overvalue brain technology. So there was a study done that demonstrated that irrelevant neuroscience information that was kind of just placed next to an explanation of something. So um, putting a cute little picture of, of a brain scan next to a very completely unrelated explanation of some topic uh, that the picture of the brain seemed to interfere with people's abilities to consider the logic of that topic. So 
it's it's a very concerning fact about the brain and the reason this is called neuroseduction is because people seem to be seduced by brain science and for this reason those of us that are aware of or talking about these things need to also be aware of neurohype neuroseduction existing in general society right like how do we combat this happening and i think it eventually falls in the hands of the researchers or the scientists or the people that are marketing this to the general public and it has to be considered absolutely and on top of all of this there's an overtrust of technology in general right and what do i mean by this i kind of talked about it a little uh with my example of the surgeon in the or and there's other examples of this rooted in research and back in 2016 uh, some researchers decided to put together a study where they basically recruited some 30 college kids to come sit in a room they didn't give them any information about what the study would actually be and they threw in a bunch of smoke a bunch of you know made it look like there was going to be a fire in the room and all the kids are running and there's an exit sign so they run towards the exit sign and there's a left and there's a right and on the left is like the very obvious path to go outside it's like the the doors right there they all entered from that side and on the right is this little makeshift ugly tin can robot that has a little sign that says exit and it's waving its arm back and forth and it's pointing towards this dark alley on the right and crazy you wouldn't believe it i didn't believe it when i read the paper all 26 people chose to follow the robot's instructions in this supposed emergency even when it pointed to a dark room with no discernible exit so the investigators labeled this in their paper as a disturbing overtrust of robots and overtrust of technology even when it shows signs of being not trustworthy So other examples of this, right? Let's think about self-driving cars. You're sitting at the front seat, you're chilling, you're doing whatever people do in self-driving cars, and you were told when you bought this very expensive car that it would stop immediately um, when placed in a situation that would otherwise lead to an accident. So you're chilling, you're chilling, and you get very uncomfortably close to the car in front of you and you have the ability to override your technology to press the brakes and to make sure you don't get into a car accident but in the back of your head you're thinking no 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 my car knows what to do my car's got this i'm fine i'm like overthinking the situation and this has literally happened before where people have trusted their technology to a point where they've ended up in a car accident there are people that trust their garmin or their gps or their apple maps and have driven down dark lonely roads even though the app was glitching or whatever may be the case i mean there's plenty of examples i'm sure all of us could think of them um, about this happening and about it being this overtrust in technology we seem to think that technology is um knows better than we do and and that speaks to that example i was talking about with the surgeon so this overtrust that I've been talking about it, it suggests how malleable we can be as as people, right? We can overtrust into even situations that are dangerous and overtrusting neurotechnology and compounding that with neurohype and neuroseduction make us ex- 
especially susceptible to its influence. And for this reason, we have to be very careful about how they're being marketed and be very careful about the benefits and limitations of these products, right? What are we really promising people? What are we suggesting that the technology is capable of doing? But also, what is it not capable of doing? And and highlighting the role of the user, right? At the end of the day, technology should only be an adjunct to who we are as human beings and to the way we perform as human beings. And I think that's what's super, super important about the way that neurotechnologies are addressed, right? Um, Whatever it may be, whether it's the AR headset or the car you drive or the robot on the street, right? Keeping, Keeping ourselves in check and keeping in mind that no matter what the technology is, that there's a human behind it, that there's a human that programmed it, that there's a user that produced it, and there can always be flaws for that reason. And (laughs) I just thought of a whole separate conversation that we can have about bias and neurotechnology, and maybe I'll touch upon it for uh, a hot second. Um, Keep in mind that technologies are being produced by humans, right? So whatever biases that humans have can also be programmed into the technologies that they produce. So um, whether it be Google's algorithms showing racial bias or Facebook's algorithms showing gender or or age bias, uh, keep in mind that as unbiased and clean and um, robotic and non-human technologies can seem, they're, they're ultimately human in one way or another. And, and not that I'm saying they're alive or out to get us, but they're, they're created by humans, so they're an extension of who we are. And I think I will wrap that up right there on that very strange and uh, metaphysical note. And we will be back. I'll be back with Tyler in hopefully a few days to discuss maybe Hoth Intelligence, maybe Neurotechnology, and some of the things I talked about today from his point of view. And as you guys know, it's always a good conversation when me and Tyler are together in in a room. So hopefully you're looking forward to it as much as I am. And uh, until then, thank you very much. Thank you.